Well, today I want you to turn to a familiar passage. It's one that uh, I think everybody in this room probably doesn't need to turn to, but I'm going to ask you to turn to it anyway because it's a passage that uh, we're going to be walking through and talking through here in just a few moments, and it's in John chapter 3. Now, can somebody tell me, like, what's the familiar passage in John chapter 3 that most of you know? John 3.16, that's where I want you to turn today. We're going to be talking about the love of God as we walk through this Advent season. Uh, The four elements there, hope, love, joy, peace. And today we're going to talk about the love of God. And today I've entitled the sermon, The Wonderful Invention of Love, because that's exactly what it is. Because make no mistake, I don't care what Hollywood says, I don't care what books might say or magazines might say or what culture might say. That love is an invention not of this world and not of this culture. Love is an invention of God. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Jesus, uh, in, in his word, like God, Paul, writes that statement of God's gift to us of love, the kind of love that never fails, the kind of love that it does, keeps no record of wrongs, the kind of love that is patient and is kind, the kind of love that never fails. And that is what God has given to us, this picture of love. When you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, when God created mankind, you can walk through that narrative in the first few uh, chapters of Genesis and you can see everything that took place was a picture of and was the gift of and was the invention of love. That is why God has done what he's done. It's why God is doing what he's doing today. And it's why God continues to do everything that he will do until the the day that he shows us the ultimate picture of love and welcomes us into the place of heaven that he has created for us. And so that's today what we're going to talk about. This idea, this picture of love. And when you talk about that wonderful invention of love, we can go back to the Old Testament and we can see like this very clear narrative pointing forwards to what that love would actually end up looking like. In fact, I want to just run through some scriptures right now and just share with you kind of some of those Old Testament prophecies of of the kind of love that God had in store for us, even after the failure in the Garden of Eden, even after mankind had turned its back on God, that love never failed. In fact, we can go to the book of Genesis and there, God talking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. It'll be on your screen. You don't need to turn in, uh, to all these different passages. But in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, it says, And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. God was talking to Abraham that day saying that the entire world will be encouraged. The entire world will be changed. The entire world will be made better through your offspring, the people that come through your family. And he was pointing not to a person that was human. He was pointing to the gift of Jesus who would come many, many years later. We continue through scripture into Numbers chapter 24 when Balaam was uh, talking to Balak, sharing with Balak what God had laid on his heart. And in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam said these words, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob. Jacob is Israel. And a scepter will arise from Israel. Balaam, even back in that day, was telling that king, telling Balak that Jesus is on the way. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. Nathan heard from God a, a message to take to King David, and he said these words. God said, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, that's a nice way of saying, when you kick the bucket. 
God was speaking to David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And here's the key word, forever. In other words, it wasn't David's kingdom that would be forever. It wouldn't be Solomon's kingdom that would be forever. It is the kingdom of God. In Psalm chapter 72, verses 9 and 10, a picture, a prophecy of the, the moment when the wise men came and knelt at the, uh, the birth of that little baby. It says, may desert tribes kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coasts and islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and, uh, and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow in homage to him. All nations serve him. The three wise men, the story that we hear so much at Christmas time here in some literally thousand years before that took place God prophesied of what would look that would look like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 talked about that virgin birth that would come he said therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign see the virgin will conceive have a son and name him Emmanuel which means God with us the prophet Isaiah, again, with that incredible godly message that came from God directly to the heart of Isaiah. And Isaiah told the people, there will be one who comes who is the son of God, and he will be born of a virgin, and he will represent God with us. You skip forward two chapters in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we read this, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. That passage goes back to what was said all the way back in Genesis chapter 22, that from your offspring the nations will be blessed. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Again, a biblical way, a fancy way to say that out of the family of Jesse, and we all know who Jesse is, right? Jesse was the father of who? David. So a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, that from the family of Jesse, through the family of David, that God himself will come. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 23, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name that he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet said again, this is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. No more. This is a prophecy again of what would come many, many years later when they were going out trying to kill all of the young male children born there in Bethlehem at that time. Why? Because they wanted to cut off this gift that people were talking about, the gift of the Son of God. And so this is talking about how Rachel or Israel was lamenting, weeping for her children. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 11, 
Verse 1, I'm sorry. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God, again, through the prophet Hosea, was saying, listen, I know there's going to be a time when they're going to try to kill all of the, uh, the, the children there to try to kill Jesus. And we know that Joseph and Mary, they fled from Bethlehem, and they went down into Egypt to wait there under God's direction to wait to protect that little baby Jesus. In Hosea chapter 11, again, Israel was a child. I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my my son, an Old Testament prophecy of what exactly would happen many years later. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. That statement of Bethlehem, that word Bethlehem just means the house of bread or the house of food. And then you see it's followed up with that Ephrathah, which literally means fruitfulness. And so out of this place that talks about food and talks about fruit, talks about nourishment, talks about what helps you grow and helps you sustain life out of you. It says, I will call one who will be ruler over Israel for me, an Old Testament prophecy of the baby that would be born. And then when you go into Matthew, when you see the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, and there are many more that I have not shared. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, another familiar verse that says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, the picture of everything that I've just shared is just simply this, the picture of the wonderful invention of love. That God in his providence and God in his sovereignty, even though we did not deserve it, even though we could not do anything to earn it, that God loved us so very much that he still provided a way for us to have fellowship with him. Charles talked about that last week, that Jesus was the forerunner so that we could have access to God, that, that without that gift that came in the form of a little baby born to a virgin in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that there would be no hope, that there would be no love, that there would be no joy, that there would be no peace, that there would be no future whatsoever. But yet, because of the love of God, God made a difference. God changed things. Now, when I talk about this statement, the wonderful invention of love, I've got to be honest in full disclosure. The reason I entitled this sermon, The Wonderful Invention of Love, is because in my mind, I went back and remembered a song that there was a group back in the 80s called Truth. Anybody remember the group Truth back in the 80s? So put your hands back up if you remember them. I want all the young people to look. We are the old guys in the room. Because that was a long time ago. And there was a song that they did that was called The Wonderful Invention of Love. And I got to be honest with you, I went yesterday and I went searching for a video of that song from back in 1987, 35 years ago. And I learned this, the quality of video cameras back then were not that great. <laughs> but I want you to hear the words of this song and I want to share it with you right now. I'll help us snap, it'll be a whole lot more fun. Here we go. If you find a heart in need of some attention Someone who's alone with no friends to mention Take the time to tell them about this Wonderful invention of love If you find someone who needs some direction You lead them out of a bad situation You'll find out why I'm talking about this Wonderful invention of love Cause love can tear down the strongest mountain It can grow 
Wonderful invention, wonderful invention of love. Someone has a problem without a solution. They say they can't take any more confusion. They call for help, that's the time to share this wonderful invention of love. Cause love can tear down the strongest mountain. It can cross the raging sea. God's love can clear up a cloudy day. that 80s hair come on people now I got to be honest with you again more in full disclosure so when you look at that group I just show a picture again of the group there you can see the group there 1987 the guy singing in the front there's Wes Tuttle who actually was on staff here uh, after this about six months or so after but 1987 when this video if you look a little closer in fact zoom in on that picture if you would does anybody recognize that one on the left right there yeah, you see, that group, the reason that song hit me was not because of the music or the melody, it's because I saw that chick in the back, I was like, hey, I want to meet her. And that's my wife, Sherry, actually there, 1987. Love that hair. But anyway, when you hear the words of that song, I want to read just uh, the chorus again. Love can tear down the strongest mountain. It can cross the raging sea. Love can clear up a cloudy day and set a troubled heart free. Love can give hope when there's no reason. Love is the reason for the hope. So open your heart and show the world the wonderful invention of love. Now, I know that's a cheesy song. It's a cheesy look. It's a 1980s throwback. But man, what a powerful statement that then takes us right to what that wonderful invention of love flows from. Flows from and that's John chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read this verse together in verses 16 and 17. And it says these words. It says, for God loved the world. By the way, I'm reading this deliberately out of the CSB today because I've got to be honest with you, and I think most of us in this room would say this, like we've memorized this verse. And most of us have memorized this verse either in the New King James or in the King James Version. That's what we know. I've chosen the CSB specifically today, and you'll see why in just a few moments. And it says these words, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
So let's talk about that picture of love, that wonderful invention of love that was, that was forecast, that was prophesied going all the way back to the book of Genesis through all of recorded history of pointing to that picture of love that would come to that baby Jesus. And the picture that we get is of God's unique form of love. Look what it says again in the first part of that verse. For God so loved the world in this way. In this way, what's he talking about? What is that passage referring to? Here's what it's referring to. It's referring to the picture of love that flows from grace and from mercy. Now again, I don't think, this is a pretty smart group in the room. I don't think I need to explain what grace and mercy really are because we've talked about it so many times here about that unmerited favor of things that we do not deserve, God withholding from us what we do deserve. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that God could love us in that way, which does not make sense, and that's what Bethlehem is all about. That picture of that baby that was born 2,000 years ago, that was not an isolated moment in time. That was not just a, a situation that took place that we could celebrate every December 25th and then we move on to the rest of life. It is the central moment, the central point, the most amazing, incredible gift that could ever be given to mankind was the gift that happened in that manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago because that was a unique form of love that was birthed in, that was born in grace and mercy to a world that desperately needed it. A world that was so far away from God and to think that God could actually love us that much does not make sense. It's not rational. It's not natural. It's not something that you can wrap your brain around because it's like, how can God love us that much? The closest thing that we have on this earth to that kind of love is the love that we have for our kids. The love that we have for our children. Yes, I love my children like insane amounts, like, like over the top. Like I can't even explain to you how much I love my kids. And so that's the closest that we can get. But, but you've got to be honest now. Even that doesn't do it justice. Because when I talk about my four kids, of Jonathan and Jessica and Nicholas and Natalie, Jessica's seated here on the front row. When I think of my grandkids, Olivia and, and baby Jay, man, Olivia came in the back room this morning and she came and ran and jumped in my arms and said, Papa, I love you. And then she said, Papa is awesome. I'm done. <laughs> like, what else do you need besides that, right? But it, even that love that we have that is so overwhelming that we love for our kids is nothing in comparison to the love that God has for us. And here's why. Because you see, even though I love my kids so very much, Here's what I got to be honest with you. There are some people in this world that maybe I don't really love that same way, right? Like I love them, no question, but there are other people that I love according to like a biblical godly way of love, but I don't love them the way that I love my kids. But you see, God loves me and them and you and every person who's ever walked on the face of the earth in the exact same way, a love that flows through grace and through mercy, giving us that unmerited favor, withholding from us the judgment, the punishment that we deserve, that love that never can fail. God loves us all the same. And that's the difference between a love that I have for my kids and the love that God has for us. You see, it's a unique form of love that just does not make sense. There's no human understanding. There's no human component that can help us get that, that can help us recognize what that looks like. But not only is it a unique form of love, but the second part of John chapter 3, verse 16, tells us God's incredible promise of love. Look what it says in the second part of that verse. In the second part of the verse, it says this. 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see that statement that's there so that everyone who believes is a picture of, it's an, a representation of, it's a, a kind of a complimentary statement of the statement so often that we in, in kind of theological world that we talked about a lot, the statement of whosoever will. When you go into scripture and you go to Matthew chapter 16, Luke chapter 9, Revelation chapter 22, and the last passages of scripture, and we hear that statement over and over again, whosoever will, whosoever will, whosoever will. You see, the incredible promise that we have is this, is that everyone who believes God has given the promise and the hope of heaven. That when Jesus uttered those words in John chapter 14, it said, I go to prepare a place for you. I've got news for all of you sitting in this room. God was not simply, Jesus was not simply talking about Thomas Road Baptist Church, those believers sitting in this room. He was talking about every person who's ever walked and will ever walk the face of the earth. People that you think don't deserve to be in heaven. Jesus died so that they would have the opportunity. Oh, and by the way, you don't deserve it. You see, that picture of everyone who believes, that's what Romans 10, 13 says, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You, Jesus shows us this incredible promise that comes from this picture of love. Is it no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, and no matter how you've lived, and no matter who you've hurt, that God loves you anyway, and that God loves you with a love that is not, you know, it's not dependent on how you act. It's not dependent on whether you show up on a Sunday morning at church. It's not dependent on like, whether you do all the things that Scripture encourages us to do. God simply loves. God so loved the world. Man, what an amazing statement, because again, it doesn't make sense that God could give us that kind of love, that incredible promise of love. But not only that, if we go into verse 6, 17, we get the picture of God's unimaginable result of that love. Look what it says in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So in other words, why did Jesus come? Not to condemn, but to save. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. When you read that passage, the first thing that comes to my mind is the prophet Jonah. Remember the Jonah in the Old Testament, right? The guy who got swallowed by the whale? Everybody remembers Jonah, right? Who has watched your veggie tales? You're good, right? Like we all remember Jonah. And you remember the story. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them I'm going to destroy them because of the way that they're acting. And Jonah was scared and he ran the other way. And then he got thrown off the ship and he gets swallowed by the whale. And, and then God spits him up back onto the, the earth. And, and then he finally obeys and he goes to Nineveh and he declares in chapter 3 of Jonah, hey, you have been so bad. You have been such a bad people that in 40 days, God is going to level this place. He's going to destroy every single one of you. You guys are done for. And I can just see Jonah in the picture of that declaration, stepping back onto the corner into the safe zone, kind of hanging back, crossing his arms, and waiting. Just waiting. Like I told him, God, I did it. God, I was faithful. Watch what happens now. This is going to be awesome. I'm selling tickets. I got my popcorn. Man, this is going to be great. God's going to blow this place off the face of the earth. It's going to be quite a show. July 4th has nothing on this. This is going to be awesome. But then what happened is that the people heard and the people repented. 
a people who had been awful, a people who had been running from God, who had been dismissing everything that God had to say, going in the complete opposite direction. But yet because God saw repentance and God saw a change in their hearts and a change in their lives, the end of chapter 3 says that God decided not to destroy. And I love how Jonah chapter 4 opens up in verse 1. It says this, that Jonah was greatly displeased with God. Again, a biblical way of saying Jonah was flat out ticked because he was hanging out in the corner waiting for the destruction that would come, that he had been through so much. He was swallowed by a whale. He was spit up on the beach by the whale. He had gone into the lion's den, so to speak, to tell them that they were going to be destroyed because of their actions. And now he had said these words. He declared it to all the people. And now God changes his mind? How can that be? God, why would you do that? That's what Jonah chapter 4, the first part of that chapter says. Like, God, how could you do this? Love. Because of that wonderful invention of love that can take us from a moment when we do not deserve to even be in the presence of God and because of our recognition of who God is because of our hope that we find in him because of the the repentance that we find that, that God withholds from us mercy withholds from us what we deserve love can tear down the strongest mountain it can cross the raging sea love can clear up a cloudy day and set a troubled heart free every time I quote a song in a sermon it just ticks me off that Charles can sing it I mean, like he could actually sing those words. And like, everybody's all, isn't this great? He's so talented. I'm not. (laughs) But the message is still the same. Like God loves us when we do not deserve to be loved. And that's why God withheld judgment from Nineveh. It's why God withheld judgment from Lot and those who were gathered there in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's why God over and over and over again gave a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and a 10,000th chance that God continued to give and give and give. And it's why God gave me another chance is because God just simply loves Because he did not come to condemn, he came to save. He didn't come to destroy you, he came to save you. He didn't come so that you would experience the wrath of a holy God because of the way you've been acting. He came to wrap his arms around you and say, I love you, even still. That's why every one of those Old Testament prophecies pointed to something that does not make sense. That there was a God who could care that much. Think about it. Israel, the stories of the Old Testament over and over again. These were rebellious people. They were a hard-headed people over and over again. And everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. That there was a time when there was no king in Israel. And people just did whatever they wanted to do. And they were evil over and over again. And then would God give them a second chance? And then they would turn back. And then they would be evil again and again and again. But God never stopped loving because of this wonderful invention of love. But finally today, we understand that with God's incredible, unimaginable, unable to understand love, that it requires a response from each and every one of us. And for this passage, you don't need to turn to it. I want to read Psalm 107. Because in Psalm 107, verse 1, it says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
His faithful love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe and has gathered them from the lands and from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in the desolate wilderness, finding no way to a city where they could live. They were hungry and thirsty and their spirits failed within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He rescued them from their distress. He led them by the right path to go to a city where they could live. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. For he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. When you read the words of the psalmist here, what you see is God's work in action. Look at just the verbs that are given here about what he has done. It says that God was being good and he was enduring and he was redeeming and he was gathering and he was leading and he was working and he was satisfying and he was filling. All of those things that are represented in that Psalm 107 passage are things that God continues to do for each and every one of us. That's God's work. So what's our response? Our response should be a heart of thanksgiving. Our response should be a heart of of love and of worship and a heart of service. That we should just simply do for him a minuscule amount in response to all that he has done for us because it doesn't make sense. When you go back to that song from 1987, the words that Benny Hester wrote, let me just share it with you one more time. Love can tear down the strongest mountain and it can cross the raging sea. Love can clear up a cloudy day and set a troubled heart free. Love can give hope when there's no reason. Love is the reason for the hope. So open your heart and show the world this wonderful invention of love. God has called us to himself. God has called us to love him, to worship him, God has called us to serve him. And he's given us every reason that you could ever imagine for us to be faithful in doing so. Because of a love that does not make sense. That all flows from that baby that was born 2,000 years ago. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that it brings to our hearts, to our minds, of your faithfulness and of your goodness, of your love for us. God, we don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. God, we can't rationalize why it is that you love us. But God, we're so grateful that you have over and over again, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, 6,000 years of recorded history, God, that you've shown us over and over again that what you do is you just simply love us. And so, God, I pray that in response that we would know what love is and we would know how to love. And, God, for that, we give you the praise. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, in a moment we're going to stand. Our team is going to be gathered here across the the front of the room. And as we always do, we're going to stand together and sing the words of the song. And when we do, 
I'm going to invite you to just make your way from where you're seated to come down. Maybe you want to come and kneel at this altar and say, God, like I have, I have missed out on this whole picture of love. I, I don't really know like what that love looks like. Our team would love to talk with you about how much God loves you through his son, Jesus. Maybe today you need to meet him as your Lord and Savior. Man, there's no better time than Christmas time, and there's no better time than now to get things right with your relationship with him. Maybe you want to come and just kneel here and just say, God, like I've taken it for granted. And let's be honest, all of us have taken the love of God for granted at some point in our lives. Every one of us. Every single one of us at some point, we've taken the love of God for granted. Every time that as a believer that you fall into sin, you're taking the love of God for granted. Every time that you neglect the opportunity to do what God has called you to do as a believer, you are taking for granted the love of God. We've all done it. And so maybe today you wanna come and kneel at this altar and just say, God, I've been taking it for granted. I'm sorry, I'm turning it around right now. Maybe you wanna come and join our church family, come for baptism. Whatever God is speaking to you, let's stand right now. And as Scott leads us this morning, as we sing these words, I encourage you to step out. Night of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. And here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my. God, today we pray that we will never lose sight, that we will never forget how your love is amazing. God, we thank you for loving us so very much. God, we thank you for the hope that is brought to us because of that love. We thank you for the joy that emanates from that love. We thank you for the peace that is promised as a result of that love. God, we thank you for all of it. And so God, in light of that, we pray that we will live our lives in relationship to that truth that we will be who you've called us to be. Lights in the world. And God, for that, we we give you the praise that you give us the opportunity because we certainly don't deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, before you leave, let me just share with you a couple quick things. Number one, our team is going to be here. We'd love to talk with you at the altar. We'd love to have that opportunity of connecting with you. Number two, when you leave today, make sure you pick up one of those angels if you did not do so next week. Number three, next week, come prepared to give to bless our family. And number four, and I'm saying this for Chris Terry, who's sitting over here, who brought in the splat gun. Chris, Chris, somebody shake Chris. I'm still talking, dude. What are you? I mean, you were on my good side. Now, not so sure. But Chris is one of our strength coaches over at Liberty University and the football team. Here's what's really cool. Today, there's going to be really good news that comes. So God bless you and have a great day. Oh, and one other thing. 
Pray for me. My wife doesn't know that I'm Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you pray to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this journey of faith in Jesus Christ. So send us an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, well, we're here to help you. So just reach out to us. We'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. And if you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, then go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.